My mind is too full of details this morning. I forgot my sermon. I forgot my stole. But look, we're here together, and, and the train is still on the track. So, however, um, we have a uh, we have a uh, uh, we're going to start off with a bang with a second law of thermodynamics, which states that in a closed system, no processes will tend to occur that increase the net organization of the system. Maybe I'm supposed to be a living metaphor of that this morning. In other words, things get more complicated as time goes on. Now you're thinking to yourself, man, he's hitting us with the second law of thermodynamics. That's pretty rugged. However, this sort of thing would come to me when I was cleaning the toys uh, in my kids' room when they were toddlers. And it seems so true. Um, complexity gains over time. Now, at the age of 52, it seems like the older I get, this is even more true. Uh, the older I get, the more independent I feel, the more self-sufficient I become, the more accumulation of memories and experiences that shape my perceptions, it just gets more complicated. It's like, it's like the, the forest gets overgrown. This just happens naturally. That's the whole point of the second law of thermodynamics, is that this is just natural. It's called entropy. Things just kind of get more random. And there's a certain kind of way we live in that. You know, when things are just kind of going along and getting kind of complicated or more complex, we don't often even really know it, uh, but we start to deploy kind of powers uh, of our own to kind of fix things and straighten things out and kind of manage. We're administrators. It's hard work. We think hard. We work hard. We try hard. And, in fact, we may even really succeed at keeping things going. But the success is varied, of course, as time goes on. In fact, while we're doing all this, we get distracted or overwhelmed or depressed or just downright selfish um, of our stuff. But there are in life these kinds of episodic moments of clarity that break through. In my experience, clarity often comes through external influences. I think I'm getting clearer as I get older, but in fact, I just get more complicated. But there are things that happen in life, episodically, and they tend to bring clarity. We're interrupted uh, unexpectedly. Sometimes it's really good news. I mean, and that's great when that happens. Sometimes it's really bad news. A wrench gets thrown into the machinery. Now, oftentimes when this happens, Really, the way we know it is in our emotions. It's not in our intellect. We haven't figured out that something's happening. We just feel it. And our emotions are giving us cues that something's going on, and we get that pit in our stomach or a headache, or we get that exuberance. Um, but it's often the outcome of these circumstances that clarity comes. Eventually, our desires become stronger. Like the pressure of that thing that happens starts to Focus our attention. It's like cutting down all of the overgrowth because now there's something real that happens that kind of cuts across the grain and all of a sudden our emotions get wound up and over time we're going to say, I want something. I want that to stop or I want to celebrate or I want whatever. In fact, really what happens is we get really practical. When we're not stimulated by outside pressure, uh, we're doing things according to shoulds and oughts. 
You know, we see the messy room and we think that should be cleaned. But when a crisis occurs, our efforts are very pragmatic and often less constrained by shoulds and oughts. You know, when you're drowning, you're going to just grab the first thing that comes your way, whether that's a life preserver or your best friend, because just that's what happens when you drown. Um, I remember when we were in high school learning life-saving, that was the first thing you learned is don't approach a drowning person head-on because they'll take you down. All right, that's kind of dramatic, but, you know, you can kind of make the analogy that, that when things are like that, we get very practical. It's not always a very comfortable process, not for us as we go through it or for the people around us. And that is why Jesus' question is so challenging. It's so simple. He just says, what do you want me to do for you? I've come to really hate that question because either I feel like saying, well, duh. (laughs) You know, uh, like he asked that to the guy on the mat. You know, um, and on the flip side, I've realized what a fantastic question, what a merciful question, what a compassionate question. It's so beautiful that the Lord would dignify me, number one, by not making assumptions. Just because I'm blind, that may not bother me. Maybe something else that's bothering me. Um, He doesn't just kind of strong arm his way into my need. He invites me to collaborate and participate. I mean, I just love the fact that the very first time that we hear God's voice in Scripture, it's with a question. He says, Adam, where are you? A very poignant question. And God keeps asking these questions to draw us into a relationship with him. What do you want me to do for you? Some of us, like myself, really struggle to answer this question. I don't know why. Well, I kind of know why. And if others of us know what we want, well, then there's another kind of struggle, which is struggle with disappointment or anxiety that our requests are not heard or acknowledged or acceptable to God. Like, you're going to put it out there now, you know? Like you're going to get a lecture if you say the wrong thing. Well, turning to the ministry of Jesus here, Jesus has a lot more success with people who are experiencing a crisis. Now, all of his followers in, in, in the gospel story will experience a crisis of some sort or another, some of them all along the way, certainly all of them with the crisis of his death. Crisis have this potential to clarify. And so you'll find that God's servants throughout the history of Israel are often bringing the word of God to his people at a contrary angle. They, they kind of create a crisis. In fact, good preaching ought to kind of create challenges, kind of mini crises, not overwhelming things, but the gospel often comes at us sideways. In fact, maybe you, you know the story of Ezekiel who had to lie on his side for three months in order to show Israel that they're not in a good place. <laughs> kind of arresting. I mean, if I lay down on my side in the parking lot, that would be quite uh, unsettling to all of us. Um, but time and again, the people who respond to Jesus are those who are simple in their need. They're not complex in that. They're sophisticated people. But oftentimes, the people that Jesus ministers to are very simple. My daughter's dying. I can't see. I'm bleeding. 
My kid keeps getting thrown into the fire by a demon. Right, those are simple things. It's only the scholars and the academics, like the Pharisees and like myself, who come to Jesus with these kind of big questions. All right, and he answers them too. All right, but the ministry is often done with these people who come not with complication and sophistication, but with simplicity, the simplicity born out of challenge. And that's the work of the gospel, whether through the leading of the Holy Spirit or the preaching of the word or the teaching of scripture or the ministry of other people in our lives, seems to bring us to these simple but powerful places where need and desire and vulnerability meet. That's the difference between a lecture and a sermon. I love lectures. I love teaching. I love academics. I love all that. But that's not a sermon. A sermon is meant to bring you to a point of encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't always like those places. They can be venues of encountering God at his fullest, though. And by encountering him, we end up encountering so much more. We actually learn to see what he sees. With him, we can participate in what he's doing. But there's that crisis moment, that encounter, that conflict. So Bartimaeus is a, a sign of this. He has a history. We don't really know what his history is. It's likely that he had, had, had sight at one time and lost it because he's asking to recover his sight. We don't know how old he is, but he seems to be young enough to be very physically robust, you know, determined to get his life back on track. He's springing up. He's tossing off his coat. Um, he's, he's vigorous. I wonder if it was his blindness that created such interest in Jesus, he knew that this was a special person. You know, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he changes. So he knew something about Jesus. And I wonder if he'd ever been curious about him in this dimension, if, if he had never been blind. Because here, he's thought about this. I mean, somehow he's connected Jesus of Nazareth to messianic hope. His attraction to Jesus is born of desire for relief from the effects of blindness, not just simple academic interest. So it's really amazing to me how much intelligence and awareness and, and, and truth is packed into his cry of desperation. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is so compact and so rich and so amazing. I'd like to just pause on this for a minute. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In the Hebrew, it's very guttural. Yeshua ben David, rachem alai. It's a, it's a cry that just comes forth. And what he's expressing here, first of all, is that he, he calls Jesus by name, his earthly name. Jesus is a man like me. We'll come back to that again. It's very powerful. But not just any man. He is the son of David. Now, this is really amazing. It's the first time this phrase appears in Mark. 
He, he knows more in that acclamation than almost anything we've heard to this point. Now, I should just kind of step back and give you a little context for a second. It's, it's meaningful that this is happening in Jericho. So what happens is that Jesus has come from his Galilean ministry, and we've been following around up there. That's his teaching ministry. But the pressure of the narrative starts to build as he heads south to Jerusalem. And the way you do that is you head down the Jordan Valley. You kind of skip around Samaria a little bit, although Jesus doesn't, but that's another sermon. Um, but you end in Jericho, which is in the Dead Sea, and then you've got to climb 3,000 feet to get to Jerusalem. It's a day's journey, all right? And, and so you're down in, the, in, the, uh, in the, um, the springs of Jericho, and often that's in your pilgrimage to Jerusalem because the, the religious Jews in, in Galilee would make this trek to their pilgrimage for the feasts that you would celebrate in Jerusalem. There were certain feasts of Israel that you always celebrated in Jerusalem, like Passover, for example. All right, so during these high holy days, there would be parades of pilgrims taking this journey up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's in the mountains, and it's also metaphorical. You always go up to the holy city. And so in Jericho, you know, you'd have souvenir stands and, you know, people selling bottled water and things like that. And, and they were celebrating with you because you knew that this is your last stop to the great ascent. And you had little liturgical moments uh, that you would take, like when you crest the hill and you see the city for the first time. So people are excited. People are excited about this, just like they were when Jesus entered the city. This is kind of the beginning of the, this is the beginning of the parade. And so just like in Jerusalem, the people in Jericho are sensitive to these kinds of heightened uh, expressions, right? Because Jesus got a crowd around him now. Like everybody wants to be a part of this. So when Bartimaeus blurts out, you know, Yeshua ben David, Jesus, son of David, there's a lot in there, and that's arresting to people because this is the apex of the story. Had the Romans been there, they would have been very upset. They weren't, but they will get upset when, when he gets to Jerusalem. So, so Bartimaeus is really a, a special person here. He's saying something out loud that Jesus has been hinting at. He is the son of David, the messianic royal figure, the one who has healing powers. And right on the tail of that, it's almost natural to say, have mercy on me, because that's what messiahs do. That's what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does. That's what he's shown all the way along Israel's journey is that this God, even when we screw up big time, has mercy. That's so deeply rooted in Jewish consciousness. Bartimaeus knows this because he knows God. He knows this is the kind of God that God is, that when there's a cry for mercy that comes right out from the gut, nothing stops God in his track, so to speak, faster than that cry. It's the cry of his people. And so Barnabas is identifying something essential, which is the faithfulness of God to hear and to respond. That's the shape of the crisis of Barnabas. It's formed in the, deep, the depth of that relationship that the, the Jewish people have with God. And so his need collides with God's nature 
He's a Jew. He knows what this means. I find it very poignant in our reading from Isaiah 59 that God saw in verse 16, he saw that there was no man. That's a really interesting expression. God looks down on the disobedience of Israel who now are suffering from the shock and awe of their own predicament. They're groaning. They're moaning. They're walking around as though blind. And God looked and he saw that there was no man. And he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God himself became the answer to the problem. And all this energy and activity we see in Bartimaeus and Jesus revolves around the crisis of need and the bond of faith. This isn't hypothetical. It's deeply rooted in real desire and trust. Bartimaeus, therefore, will not be silenced. This is faith in action. This is how faith grows. This is where faith is experienced. It's in the pressure and the collision of your need and God's mercy. That's why we can't avoid it. We can't silence what's going on inside of us. We can't allow that to be shut up. So Bartimaeus is heard, and you'll see that he's scolded. This is really awful. At that moment of his need, when he finally voices his struggle, he's shut up by the other people around him. Because it is possible to be silenced. Had Bartimaeus not been more vigorous and robust, he would have sat down. And that's what many of us do. I do. And there's nothing worse than being silenced. Some of us, for the fear of being silenced, will never speak up. We're really afraid of what people are going to say if we speak up about the very thing that if it doesn't go well, we may never recover. That's the kind of need that Bartimaeus felt. You know, it's not just a little want, like, man, I wish I knew the winning lottery number. You know, uh, um, nobody ever asked Jesus that, you know. Um, this is something that if it goes the wrong way emotionally, he may never get back on track again. There's nothing worse than being silenced. This can be as traumatizing as the original issue. So, we, you know, what's worse for Bartimaeus, the blindness or the social stigma caused by begging? We could ask the same thing about so many physical conditions. What's worse, old age or loneliness? What's worse, the loss of the job or the shame of the loss of the job? What's worse, physical differences or staring eyes? I mean, I could go on. In our culture, of course, we're in a crisis on these lines of understanding what it means both to speak and to listen. We struggle to speak honestly and to listen well because our relationships are falling apart. In their place is fear and disgust and anger, and that's often what's driving our actions. But as followers of Christ, it's our duty to hear and to listen well. And this requires wisdom and it requires courage because it's messy. It's a messy business of acknowledging and listening and hearing. You know, blind Bartimaeus was not neat and clean. 
He was creating a scene. And there needed to be people around him with capacity to let that be okay. Of course, that's Jesus always was leading the way in providing capacity for people to be a little bit messy. And it's also our privilege as believers to speak to God and be heard by him. And so Jesus does what's according to his nature, which is that he hears the cry for mercy and he stops to pay attention. He looks at him. Jesus asks Bartimaeus what he wants. Now, in the previous passage, you'll see that he asked James and John the same thing. Now, the request of James and John is a little more sophisticated and therefore a little less clear. They want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Now, Jesus doesn't tell them they shouldn't have asked that. He treats them with just as much respect as he does Bartimaeus. And he'll ask you the same thing. What do you want? I don't find that to be a very easy question. It's deeply personal. It's never a demand. Jesus is not demanding in that question. He's inviting. He's inviting us to give more and more language to the expression of what we need and what we want and what we expect so that we gain more trust that he's a safe person to share those things with. You can't grow as a Christian without bringing this dimension of your life to God. Without being able to do that, it's just too hypothetical. It's too impersonal. Nothing pleases God more than your trust. And so Bartimaeus says what he wants and is so vulnerable to be in this position. Some of us may never have learned how to do this well, to say what we want. Maybe we just didn't grow up in families where that was acknowledged or welcomed. Or maybe we felt pressure to push our desires down. Or maybe we've been just so disappointed that we don't ever want to expose ourselves to asking anything again and being disappointed again. There are all kinds of reasons why making our desires known to God is very risky business. And Barnabas is that much more amazing in his determination. He throws off his cloak. I, I love that. There's just no hesitation. Get, get, no hindrance. Get this thing off me. It's an expression of trust grounded in his knowledge of Jesus' nature. I don't know how else to describe it. This is faith. It's rushing to connect. This is not hypothetical value propositions, though Bartimaeus does know who Jesus is, so I'm not trying to diminish the content, right? Bartimaeus has thought about this. Bartimaeus has put two and two together. Bartimaeus knows his story. But all of that that he knows in his mind is organized around the concrete details of need, of vulnerability, of relationship. This is where and how things happen. And the result is that Bartimaeus is heard, he's acknowledged, he's healed, and he becomes a follower on the way. And the first thing he sees is Jesus' face, looking at his face. Well, after that, nothing could be more compelling, and so he joins the parade. And of course, the next few days aren't so easy for Bartimaeus, just conjecturing, he follows Jesus to the cross, probably didn't see that coming. However, 
we know that he must have stayed connected because Mark is talking about him. And incidentally, this is one of the very few occasions where Mark says somebody's name, which means that he was known. Like people in the Christian community at this time, you know, this is about 50, 60 years after Jesus, people this time know obviously who Barnabas is. And so Mark is telling his story. And the other thing that Jesus does is he kind of clears the way through these scolding crowds. He creates kind of a pathway through the water of all of this dissonance so that Bartimaeus is not ashamed. He's not afraid. He's not disappointed. Even though we don't know, Bartimaeus could not have known all that would unfold after this. So I just want to, I want to encourage us with a few things that, in, in our con- kind of bringing this to an end here. First of all, let's learn how to speak from a place of honesty. The crisis is the intersection between need and grace. Being honest may be very easy for you or it may require effort and the help of other people. We experience both of those dimensions in our lives probably. The Holy Spirit gives us great aid in this. Remember, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, groans for us with groanings that can't be uttered. He moves within us to cry, Abba, Father, and brings us like sons and daughters to speak simply and concretely about things that matter to us. And because they matter to us, they matter to God too. It's a practice to speak honestly. Let's learn how to do that. Let's learn to listen to Jesus Jesus is the triune God's gift to us. God made flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, a son like us, a child, a human like us, approachable. The author to the Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but in all points, tempted like we are yet without sin, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God will always give you something that you can receive and that you can recognize as his answer to you. Always. It may not be easy to grasp at first. It may be the answer you wanted or it may point you in a different direction, but it will be given within the context of his relationship with you as a child of his And he will always connect you with his will, which is your best flourishing. Okay, so I said some of those words to be careful. It's not always easy to hear what Jesus is saying, and we may not always know if we like what we hear. But in the working out of it, we will realize that what we're getting is nothing more and nothing less than God's best for us, which isn't meant to be a principle that will come to you very specifically. He's the only one who can straighten things out, even if we failed, or to reach more deeply than the bad news with news that's even better. Let's learn how to listen to him. And finally, let's learn how to listen to other people carefully. We're not going to get a whole lot of help from our culture on this point. This is something that's going to come from each other. Let's be a place that listens, that hears, 
that acknowledges, and this requires wisdom and practice. Listening doesn't always mean agreeing. Listening doesn't always mean condoning. What it does mean is caring and loving. It means bringing another person to the one that can answer. It means developing a little muscle of capacity, not be so freaked out when things get just a little messy. This requires experience. So Paul encourages us, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's safe. But I'd like the last word to go to Bartimaeus this morning. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Let me recover my sight. Amen.